I'm Elizabeth Ray and welcome to my podcast, Authentic Elizabeth. We will discuss all things mental health, including eating disorders, trauma, EMDR therapy, and intuitive eating. Thanks for listening. Today we're going to talk about eating disorders. I figured it was probably about time that I did that since, well, that's kind of a majority of the clients that I see, along with other co-occurring um, disorders. And so first kind of wanted to start and explore what is disordered eating. I don't know if you've heard that term or not, but it's something that is pretty, pretty common. And so let's just talk about that. And I and the information around this particular uh, disordered eating, I got directly off of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics um, website. So disordered eating is used to describe a range of irregular eating behaviors that may or may not warrant a diagnosis of a specific eating disorder. So there's got to be certain criteria met for it to be an eating disorder. The biggest difference between an eating disorder and disordered eating is whether or not the person's symptoms and experiences align with the criteria defined by the American Psychiatric Association. And so if somebody talks about having disordered easing, that's more of a phrase and not a diagnosis. So I just wanted to make sure that we put that out there. But some of the symptoms of disordered eating could include frequent dieting, anxiety associated with specific foods or meal skipping, using exercise, food restriction, fasting or purging to make up for bad foods, quote unquote, consumed preoccupation with food or weight or body image, loss of control or feeling a loss of control around food, chronic weight fluctuations, uh, different things like that. I, I would also add in often I hear these terms of today's my cheat day, uh, things like that that would be kind of uh, aligning with this idea of disordered eating. If any of what I just mentioned uh, sounds and rings true for you, then you could explore whether or not you might have some disordered eating patterns. And when does disordered eating become an eating disorder? So that can be a little more difficult, but you would need to meet the criteria as set in in the DSM-5 and I could kind of tell what that's about, and that's where a lot of the diagnoses come out and the criteria is met. So I'm going to give a lot of statistics, I think, today. We're going to really just do more of a very informational and psychoeducational podcast today so that people can really understand what an eating disorder is, what it can look like, and I just want to be clear that there are different types of eating disorders. There are even from eating disorder to eating disorder, that it can show up very differently. Um, And I think a pretty common myth out there in the world at large is that you can look at somebody and tell whether they have an eating disorder, and, and that's false. You cannot look at somebody and tell whether or not they have an eating disorder. It It's just not a, a true fact. So first I'm going to start out with some information from ANAD, which is the National Association of Anorexia Nervosa, and associated disorders. Just give you some statistics that they had around eating disorders. At least 30 million people of all ages and genders suffer from an eating disorder in the United States. Every 62 minutes, at least one person dies as a direct result from an eating disorder. Eating disorders have the highest 
mortality rate of any mental illness. 16% of transgender college students reported having an eating disorder. Eating disorders affect all races and ethnic groups. And genetics, environmental factors, and personality traits all combine to create risk for an eating disorder. Now we're going to reference information that uh, can be found on NIDA, which is the National Eating Disorder Association. Their website and stuff that I talk about each and every day in the work that I do. So first we're just going to kind of talk about some of the different types of disorders and some of the more generalized ways that it can show up rather than in an individual sense. That would be much harder to address in today's podcast. So anorexia. So at any given point in time, between 0.3 and 0.4% of young women and 0.1 of young men will suffer from anorexia nervosa. Males represent 25% of individuals with anorexia, and they are at a higher risk of dying. And that's um, often because they're uh, diagnosed later, or people often assume that males don't get eating disorders. And there can be a lot of stigma around receiving help and care because of that belief that men don't suffer or struggle with eating disorders. And again, this is very basic information, just so you know that. Then we have ARFID, and that stands for Avoidant Restricted Food Intake Disorder. So in a group of adolescents with eating disorders receiving treatment at a a specialist clinic, 14% met the criteria for ARFID, and nearly half of children with ARFID report fear of vomiting or choking, and one-fifth say they avoid certain foods because of sensory issues. And that is a big thing with ARFID is this texture or sensory, which prevents them or fear of getting sick or vomiting plays very heavily into that diagnosis. So not specific eating disorder, but a touch briefly on athletes. In a study of Division I NCAA athletes, over one-third of female athletes reported attitudes and symptoms, placing them at risk for anorexia nervosa. The prevalence of eating disorders in college athletes is higher among dancers and the most elite college athletes, particularly those involved with sports that emphasize a lean physique or weight restrictions such as figure skating, wrestling, and rowing. Now we're going to talk a little bit about binge eating disorder. And a lot of this information is from the U.S., the U.K., and Europe to kind of get a better idea of how common um, eating disorders are. It's not a new disorder, but it is one that has really received formal recognition more recently. Um, And so there's been a lot of gaps in the data and the research, and that's kind of why they have taken this approach. So BED is more than three times more common than anorexia and bulimia combined. It's more common than breast cancer, HIV, and schizophrenia. Approximately 40% of those with binge eating disorder are male. And 3 out of 10 individuals looking for weight loss treatments show sign of BED. Then we're going to discuss a little bit about bulimia. At any given point in time, um, 1% of young women and 0.1% of young men will meet diagnostic criteria for bulimia nervosa. 
And so I know we only touched on that briefly. We can talk a little more about that in detail. So what are some of the things that might contribute to an eating disorder? Or what are some of the things that people have reported struggling with um, in their lives? Big one and a common one that I see is this weight shaming or stigmatizing and bullying. The best known environmental contributor to the development of eating disorders is the sociocultural idealization of thinness. So if you think about that, our society is pretty focused on being thin, on being quote unquote fit, of having a certain body type. It's what we see in our magazines, it's what we see on TV, etc. Um, and often a lot of that is photoshopped and things along those natures. And so are we really getting an accurate description of what a body might look like without having to really work hard to get to that body and, and maybe do things that aren't so healthy, so to speak. And I use that word in a general term. So of American elementary school girls who read magazines, 69% say that the pictures influence their concept of the ideal body shape. And up to 40% of overweight girls and 37% of overweight boys are teased about their weight by peers or family members. And weight teasing actually predicts weight gain, binge eating, and extreme weight control measures. Children and mothers who are overly concerned about their weight are at increased risk for modeling their unhealthy attitudes and behaviors. And something that I, I see each and every day in the work that I do is low self-esteem is a common characteristic of individuals who have eating disorders. So we know just some of the very basics around eating disorders. And so I think now I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the co-occurring disorders or things that we commonly might see with an eating disorder. And a study of more than 2,400 individuals hospitalized for an eating disorder found that 97% had one or more co-occurring conditions. And some of those were uh, mood disorders, uh, mostly major depression, uh, anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, or they had alcohol or substance use disorder. So approximately one in four people with an eating disorder have symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, which means that they have had some sort of trauma in their life. Um, and we can talk more about trauma, the word trauma, the definition of that, etc. cetera. Um, in women hospitalized for an eating disorder, 36.8% regularly self-harmed. Personality disorders also commonly occur in individuals with eating disorders. So then it goes on to give more specific details, and we're not going to go into that. Another thing that we often can find or can co-occur with eating disorders is compulsive exercise. And there's a, there's a very strong link between the two. So between 40% and 80% of anorexia nervosa patients are prone to excessive exercise in their efforts to avoid putting on weight. 95% of all dieters will regain their lost weight in one to five years. And over one half of teenage girls and nearly one third of teenage boys use unhealthy weight control measures such as skipping meals, fasting, smoking, cigarettes, vomiting, taking laxatives. 
so often with an eating disorder, you'll see somebody who, and I think this happens with disordered eating, uh, just kind of on a different level. Oh, I can eat that today because I exercised or because I ate that today, I need to exercise this amount of time in order to compensate for that. That is uh, definitely something that we see all the time. So just some more facts. Americans spend over $60 billion on dieting and diet products each year. Multiple studies have found that dieting um, was associated with greater weight gain and increased rates of binge eating in both girls and boys. Eating disorders have the second highest mortality rate of all mental health disorders surpassed only by opioid addiction. So I think this is a little different from what I said at the beginning, and this has been updated with the epidemic that we have around opioid abuse. And just in case you didn't know, eating disorders are serious but treatable mental and physical illnesses that can affect people of all genders, ages, races, religion, ethnicities, sexual orientation, body shapes, and weights. National surveys estimate that 20 million women and 10 million men in America will have an eating disorder at some point in their lives. And while nobody knows for sure exactly what causes eating disorders, there is a a growing consensus and belief with the studies that have been done that suggest there is a range of biological, psychological, and social cultural factors. I just want to add here that I just hope that there's some psychoeducation that came out of this for you to know that it is not a, a white person disease or a rich person disease. I think there are just so many myths out there around eating disorders, and it can affect anybody. It can affect somebody in your family. Perhaps you know somebody who has an eating disorder. There could be somebody who maybe shows some disordered eating patterns, and you aren't aware that they have an eating disorder. It is something that is very secretive. It is something that is kept very close to somebody because there's great fear in being found out and in the shame that might come up for them. And then perhaps the expectation of those loved ones who have concerns to maybe kind of seek treatment for it. And not everybody's ready for that. But let's let's be kind and gentle with those around us in our thoughts, in our actions, and how we interact with others. Remember, we don't know by looking at somebody whether they have an eating disorder. I am here to tell you that they come in all different shapes, sizes, all different ethnicities, all gender gender identities, um, sexual identities, you name it, um, and you can have an eating disorder. Nobody is excluded from that. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy or low social economic status or in the middle, you can be affected and have an eating disorder. So what do you do if you know that any of this that was discussed today kind of rings a bell for you or for a loved one? I would start with doing some research. And this is for very basic if you're just learning about eating disorders. But like I said, the NIDA website is great, National Eating Disorder Awareness. Uh, It has very specific information. It can guide you uh, in steps to take. And there's so many other great uh, resources and websites out there. If you're looking for a therapist, uh, you could always look on psychology today. I would recommend looking for somebody who specializes in eating disorders. 
Another place to look is VFAD, Valley Federation of Eating Disorders. This is for the San Fernando Valley, Los Angeles area. They have a great resource, uh, very specific people who treat eating disorders. And these are people that they've worked with or are familiar with. And so you know they've been vetted in that sense. Another option is checking out treatment centers. If you feel like you need more care than that or your loved one needs more care than that, and they often give you some referrals or suggestions, or maybe you need to enter treatment or your loved one needs to enter treatment. I want to also reiterate and emphasize the fact that there is hope. There is hope for you or somebody else who is struggling with an eating disorder. It doesn't have to be a death sentence. It doesn't have to be something that you can't recover from or be in recovery for. I would not do what I do each and every day if I didn't believe that it's possible. Can eating disorders be complicated? Absolutely. Can they be difficult? Can people really struggle and and sometimes have many years of work to kind of get through to the other side? Yes, I see it quite often. And I also see where people are in treatment and do this work or in private practice and that moment when something clicks. When something clicks and they are able to challenge the eating disorder and the thoughts that come around it. And so much of that is doing this work around trauma and these co-occurring disorders. Often it includes family work. And one thing that I find is really at the core and mentioned earlier is this belief of who you are as a person, liking yourself or loving yourself. Often there's just very low self-esteem and a, a belief that they aren't worthy. And that's such a core and important part of the work. And I think that even if you, maybe you have some disordered eating that I would suggest maybe uh, doing some of that work. And we'll talk more about how to go about doing that and what that might look like in some future episodes. Um, and once again, I just am really grateful that you popped in today and are on this journey with me as we explore some of the mental health in our society and ways that it might affect us or our loved ones and look for ways that we can better ourselves and help others. Thanks for joining me on Authentic Elizabeth. My website is elizabettherapy.com and remember that together we can do hard things one step and one day at a time. Thank you so much.